Today's reading comes from 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 21. 1 John chapter 5. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin leading not, leading, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's the word of God. You may be seated. I have been very excited for this message and kind of sad because this is the end of 1 John. This will be the end today. We've spent a lot of time in this. But also I'm very excited just because it's been on my heart this week. In fact, even like last night, I was when I was doing the snow tubing, I was being pulled up the side of the hill. I was closing my eyes and I was like remembering the message. I was remembering the scripture. Um, 1 John. If I was to put 1 John into just one kind of question for you is this. Do you know God? Do you know God? I think most people would say, yes, yes, I know God. But I think very far fewer people that say they know God actually know God. You ever stop and think about how crazy of a statement that is that I know God? Now, if I told you I know Tom Cruise, you'd probably be like, when did you join the Church of Scientology, Pastor Jason? (laughs) But if I said, okay, I Tom Cruise knows me, and I don't mean like he knows I exist, like we're best friends. You're like, okay, you really did join the Church of Scientology, didn't you, Jason? No, no, no. But you know something I say with conviction? I know God, and he knows me. Close, personal, covenant relationship. I know God. That is the claim of every Christian. And when we think about it, it it it's ludicrous and it's amazing at the same time. I know the God of all the universe. The one who spoke the worlds into motion. Actually, even more than that, because 1 Corinthians tells us, who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? Great statement, right? Who knows God's mind? Nobody. He says, but we have the mind of Christ. So not only am I saying, do I know God? Does he know me? I am saying that I have this personal relationship with Jesus Christ to the point where I have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ, really? Absolutely. More than that, Galatians 4, 6 says that he sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit that cries, Abba, Father. You know what it means to be in relationship with each other, to be in relationship with somebody else? 
to know them and they know you. It's fellowship. The first, the first sermon I preached on this series, I called it a coin-operated church. It's kind of a funny play on words because the word in the Greek, um, uh, in, the, in the Greek is koinonia. So with a K. So it's coin-operated with a K. Because that is the heartbeat of this, is that you might be in fellowship with God and that we might be in fellowship with each other. For truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. So you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. That's what this, this is what God has been telling us throughout this entire book. Fellowship is so important with each other and with Jesus Christ and with God the Father. There are things that strain and break such fellowship. I'm, I was hearing another pastor preach on this book, and he made the statement about 1 John that if you don't know anything about the Gnostics, you won't understand anything about this book. While I disagree with that statement, I think there's a lot of wisdom in it, because that's the other half of this conversation of 1 John. 1 John really is John, the apostle, the revelator, the elder. He's responding to a lot of false teaching that is in the church that is breaking fellowship. So I do think that there's a lot of wisdom in that. I disagree with it ultimately because I think even if you don't have that information, you still get a lot out of this book. You might not have even heard the word Gnostic before. You read this book, you're going to get a lot out of it. Because the basic meaning is still true. The basic meaning is, is empowerful. But, when we, but I do think that knowing who the Gnostics are, what John is writing about, it actually does give us a lot of insight. In fact, this section of Scripture especially. See, the Gnostics, they come, the word Gnostic comes from the Greek word to mean knowing. And actually, we'll be talking about that in a second here. And they believed that they had secret knowledge from God. They had secret knowledge from God that God would come to them in dreams and visions, and he would deliver to them secret knowledge that other Christians didn't have. So they'd be like, don't worry about what the writings of the apostles say. I had a vision. Jesus came to me in the vision, and this is what he said. So this portion of the scripture, John will use the word know seven times. What do you know? So I have on here knowing. Because that was their thing, that they had this special secret knowledge. In your Bibles, just in this section of 1 John, John tells us seven times that we know something. I would mention how in, if it was Hebrew, and even the writers of the New Testament do this as well, they will repeat the same word several times for emphasis. But I feel like when there's like seven times somebody's repeating something, you either get it or you're never going to get it. It's like Mark Anthony's speech in, in Julius Caesar from Shakespeare. And he says the word um, rebellion or mutiny like 10 times until people are finally like, yeah, let's do that. So he says here, you know something. He says it seven times. Six of those times is the word Edo. Edo is simply observation. You know because you've seen, you've experienced. That's how John starts off this letter. What we have heard, what we have seen with our own eyes and what we have touched with our hands. In fact, sometimes this word is translated as seen or saw. The wise men told Herod, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We, Edo, his star, when it rose and have come to worship him. The other word is Ganesco, which is where, of course, um, Gnostic would come from. And this is an experience. This is a knowing that comes from an experience with relationship with somebody. For instance, I can Edo that Rocky is wearing plaid today. I see it. You can see it. But I also know Rocky 
So if you start telling me, okay, Rocky the other day, he was saying X, Y, and Z and acting the fool, I tell you, I don't believe it because I know Rocky. And if I know you and I know you not to be truthful, I'll say that. I know you and I know him. So until he proves otherwise, I'm going to believe in the relationship I have with Rocky. We see so much of what God does in our life, and that is also that we may Ganesco know him. Secret knowledge. Like I said before, the Gnostics said that they had secret knowledge of God. There are people today, they'll say, don't worry about what the Bible says. God told me in a vision or a dream. That's exactly what the Gnostics were doing. And they were preaching against God's word. They probably didn't say that, oh, this is against what Paul and the apostles had, Paul and the apostles had said or John the apostles had said. But it was. And here's the thing. There's not tears of Christianity. Can I say that again? There's not tears of Christianity. I'm up on the platform, but I'm not more important to God than you are. Believe it. Don't look at the people who are up on platforms, who have, who have a platform and social media and stuff as though they are somehow more holy, more knowledgeable, or more anything than you are. We're all fellow servants. They would claim to have authority over others through their visions and dreams, and they would be preaching against God. And for the poor people listening to this, for new believers, and when you were a new believer, I don't know if you remember this. I remember when I was a new believer, if you said, you will know God more if you jump off a three-story roof. I'm jumping off a 20-story roof because I want to know Jesus. That's why, that's, why, that's why Jesus Christ will talk about somebody who causes a little one to sin. They might as well have a millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the sea because he knows the state we're in when we love him, when we just want more of him. And for somebody to take that and use it against us, there could be, there's very few things as evil as that. It's a violation of the first order. They would do this, and even people who are experienced in the face, they would hear these things, but they don't know any better. So they're thinking, okay, secret knowledge of God. This sounds good. Let's go ahead and embrace it. And would be st- what would be stolen from them is their joy, their peace, the things that God desperately wanted them. And then their fellowship with one another would be under strain. They really didn't have to go anywhere other than Deuteronomy 29, 29 to know about the secret things of God. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things of God belong to the Lord our God. Can I read that again? The secret things, um, the, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Somebody says, I have secret knowledge from God. Nobody's ever known. Nobody ever knows. All other Christian beliefs are an abomination to the Lord. That's what Mormonism said, John Smith. The secret things of God belong to the Lord our God. You don't have secret things. Even look at the, the New Testament, where people are writing Scripture It comes from the Old Testament. Oftentimes they're quoting the Old Testament. Revelation, the book in the Bible we have that is the most like, I saw a vision, here's my vision from God, is steeped in the imagery and the promises of the Old Testament. So somebody says, no, I have the secret things of God. The secret things of God belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children, that we may do all the words of this law. So you read that and you're like, well, I'm not a Jew. Does that apply to me? It does. For we are all children of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. It belongs to us and to our children and to all who would believe. A person coming, comes along, they say they have secret things of God. Don't believe them. The secret things of God are secret. What is revealed has been revealed to all of us. God is not holding back something from you. 
But the Antichrist spirit fills a person when they aspire to take the place of the word of God, the logos of God in your life. And they want to share with you, not from God's word, but from their own spirit, what God wants for your life. They want to be a rival of Christ or an antichrist in your life. The first sermon I preached on this book, I titled it A Coin-Operated Church. Coin spelt with a K because it's a play on the Greek word for fellowship, koinonia. That's what this book has all been about, fellowship, close covenant relationship, first with God and then with each other. The last section is a summary of the rest of the book. Know God, love your brother and sister in the Lord, and live righteously. May I remind you of last week's sermon? That while John starts off this letter talking about his testimony, he says what we have heard, what we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. In chapter 5, he says it's not just my testimony, it's God's testimony. And he uses these three witnesses, the water, the blood, and the spirit. If you want to know more about who those are, check out last week's sermon. I'm not going to go over that today so that we can move on with this last section right here. In this last, this last section, it's really a summary of all the rest of the book. It's about knowing. I talked about, I said before, six times Edo, one time Ginesco, knowing. What do we know? One, we know the Son of God. Two, we know love and righteousness. And three, we know we have eternal life. Now, I, I like to go verse by verse. I'm going verse by verse today. But all three of these points are in each each section as well, each, uh, each bit of uh, I have, because John doesn't care about Pastor Jason thousands of years later doing a sermon, I guess, um, which is fine. But we are starting in verse 13. I assume you have your Bibles open and are following me, um, as though, once again, you're looking along with me as we go along here. Verse 13 starts off with a bang. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Believe in the name of the Son of God. That doesn't mean just having head knowledge like you believe the Son of God's name is Jesus. You may be familiar with the phrase, you may be familiar with the phrase, making a name for yourself. Let me go back here and what this doesn't mean. Sometimes when we go over the names of God, I did a whole series on the names of God, and we take it to an unhealthy, unbiblical way in which we think, okay, I know some of these Greek and Hebrew names of God, therefore I have power over God and he has to do what I ask. That is, a, that is a practice in the occult of many different religions, of knowing somebody's true name. Now I have power over them or of the God or goddess or whatever. It's more in the line of this. In the book of Genesis, when they were building the Tower of Babel, the people there said, let us make a name for ourselves. When you believe in somebody's name, you're believing their reputation. You're believing they are who they say they are. Now what you think, you're acknowledging they, they exist. See, if you believe in my name, you know who I am. There's this story of Alexander the Great. I don't think it actually happened, but it is a story around Alexander the Great. He was walking across the battlements, and he finds a young man asleep on his guard post. Throughout many centuries, if you were asleep on your guard post, they just killed you. And for good reason. People are inside the city and they're sleeping because they believe somebody is watching out for them. And for that person to fall asleep, to let the enemy in, he wakes the young man up. The man wakes up with a startle and he asks him, young man, what's your name? And then Alexander the Great asking the young man, what's your name? And the young man says, Alexander, sir. 
So Alexander the Great tells him, change your name or change your conduct. We call ourselves Christian, which means little Christ. We aspire to be like Christ. May we do so with all fervor and passion. The name of the Son of God is not just the sounds we make with our mouth. It's his reputation. It's believing everything he says he is. Co-equal with the Father, God incarnate, at birth, life, death, resurrection, sitting at the right hand of the Father, more than an agreement, but an unbreakable covenant made with the Son of God by his blood. Philippians 2, chapter 2, verses 9 and 11 says it, 9 through 11 says it all. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So many people say, I, I believe in the name of the, Son of the Son of God. If you think I can do whatever I want and God doesn't care, you do not believe in the name of the Son of God, because you don't believe he's Lord. If you think, I can continue to sin so that grace may increase, you don't believe in the name of the Son of God because you don't believe he is truly Lord, that he has anything to say to you today. This is what John, this is why John so fervently, so passionately attacks those who lie about who Jesus Christ is. He says they have the spirit of Antichrist. They're liars because they do not believe on the name of the Son of God. He says, he, he writes this to us so that um, those who believe in the name of the Son of God, that we may know we have eternal life. You don't have to wonder or fear whether or not God has actually saved you. Have you believed in the name of the Son of God? Has that caused you to hate the sin you once loved and love the righteousness you once ignored? John says he writes this so that we may know that we have eternal life. That's the assurance that we have from the Lord. As we found out in the last chapter, this assurance can be undermined by a couple things. One, we really don't know the Lord. Two, we have an overactive conscience. We have this overactive conscience. That's why John says that even if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. Amen? I heard a pastor preaching on this, and he asked the congregation, how many of you in your Christian life doubted you were a Christian at one point in time? And the whole congregation put up their hands. I'm so glad that God is greater than my heart. I'm so glad that my salvation isn't based on me, how I feel, but it's based on the immovable, unshakable name of the Son of God. It is based on his word that was revealed in the scriptures. Three, the third one, John deals with this, you've not been perfected in love. You have a hard time loving your brother and sister in the Lord, and your own conscience, your own spirit is saying there's a disconnect and we cannot reconcile this. You need to be reconciled to your brother and sister. This is our purpose in Jesus Christ, is to have eternal life. Do you know what the purpose in your life is? I guess I just told you. Ah, I should have done that reverse. What is your purpose? People write books about purpose. Purpose Driven Life was one of the biggest books that's ever been printed other than the Bible itself. People are very much interested. What is my life's purpose? And we've gotten this so confused over the years. I went to Bible college. I don't know if you guys know this. Me and my wife met in Bible college. And we went to Bible college with many other people. Many other people going to Bible college to become a pastor, become missionaries, teachers, and things like that. And we graduated in 2007. If you remember, if you have a good enough memory, what happened in 2008? The worldwide recession. 
And we were all thinking we're going to be pastors, we're going to be missionaries, we're going to be world changers. And we graduate from college and we're burger flippers, team members at Target, and so on and so forth. So God tested a generation to see, do we really believe in the name of the Son of God? Do we really, really believe that our purpose in life and in our death is to have eternal life, to be with Christ forever? Or were we just looking to see what I could get out of Daddy God? Like he was Santa Claus. And a lot of our classmates, okay, not only are they not serving the Lord, some of them deny his very existence because he didn't give them what they truly wanted. Because when it came right down to it, they thought their purpose was to stand above others instead of stand with each other. To encourage one another in most holy faith, whether we were preaching from a lectern or stocking shelves at Target. That's your purpose in this life. And if you do not know this purpose, if you do not embrace this purpose, nothing else will convince you of it. You can get to the top of your profession. You can get to the top of your hobby or whatever it is, and you will find there is no greater dread than to have exactly what you want and for it not to fill you. In John's introduction, way back in chapter 1, verse 4, seems like a long time ago, he says that he, this would make his joy complete. If the reader would have fellowship with him and the apostles, for their fellowship is with God, living in true purpose, eternal purpose, living as God has remade us to live. Verse 14, confidence. The confidence we have in Lord. Um, and this is the confidence that we have toward him. Confidence comes from relationship. Where does confidence in the kingdom of God come from? Some people seem to have such a great strong, unwavering confidence in the Lord. How do they have such a thing? The rest of verse 14. And if we ask according to his will, we know he hears us. They have spent so much time at the feet of Jesus Christ. Their will has become, his will has become their will. People will take this verse and the next verse out of context to be like, you can pray for a Mercedes and Jesus has to give you the Mercedes. No, what happens when I get close to God? When I bring all my requests to him, my will starts changing into his will. And I don't want the Mercedes. I want my family member to be saved. I pray for things I would never have dared to pray for before. We look at the captain of our salvation, Jesus Christ, and what he prayed for in the days of his flesh. And he had such confidence before the Lord. And he prayed about, I'm going to get to the Garden of Gethsemane for a second here. But you look at other people in the scripture who had great confidence, who prayed and God heard their prayers like Elijah. Elijah, we're told, he prayed so earnestly, God made it stop raining for a period of time. You know how he got to that point? When he, showed him, when he was showing himself to the king after the period of drought, this, his, the king's attendant came to him and he told him to tell the king that as surely as the Lord whom he stands before, he will show himself to the king. If you stand in the presence of God, you don't kneel before men. If you stand in the presence of God, you don't kneel before men. Because you know, you know the truth. You know what eternal life truly is. Jesus Christ knew the will of God, but he prayed, nevertheless, may this cup be taken from me. Before, before the crucifixion, 
Jesus had made many prophecies. He had told his disciples that he, the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem, must suffer many things, die, and be resurrected. He had said this, but at the garden, he prays to his Father. He says, if you are willing, let this cup be passed from me, but not as I will, as you will. I don't think Jesus needed to say that out loud. I think that was for our benefit. That even, even when we are crushed in spirit, even when perhaps the answer is no, we should still bring the request to God anyway. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Prayer's main aim is not to get things from God, but to become like Jesus Christ. It is to get him. We pray and we know that he hears us. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 through 9. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 through 9. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. You hear that and you're thinking, but Jesus still died. What do you mean he was heard? Even when the answer is no, Jesus, God still hears us. And that gives us great confidence. It gives us great confidence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. This is what it means that our, my will becomes like his will. I become like Jesus Christ, the one even through my suffering, God works amazing things in and through the life. It's probably one of the greatest testimonies to this world is not how a Christian deals with success, but how they deal with suffering. There's this story in church history called the Holy Forty. It's one of my favorite martyr stories. That sounds weird to say. It's a really interesting story about these martyrs. They were part of the Thundering Legion. That's of the Roman military. They're a part of this very prosperous Roman legion. In fact, you probably can see into my office, which I meant to shut the door, but I didn't. You see the shield right there. It's the shield of the Thundering Legion. So 40 of these, these legionari- legionaries, they get saved, and their prefect does not like this. He wants them back into the fold. There was some push and pull between different emperors. And he had those 40 stripped down and go off on a frozen lake. We can all sympathize, can't we? (laughs) Over the last week when it was so cold. And he had warm baths prepared on the shore, good food. And he told them, if you would renounce and take a pinch of incense and, 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 and put it in the fire, and say, Caesar is Lord. All will be forgiven. You'll be put back into the army. They refused. This was their prayer. Forty wrestlers for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory, and from thee the victor's crown. They had fought to the death for human emperors. How could they not do so for the King of kings and the Lord of lords? So they're huddled together. They're walking back and forth to try to stay alive during this cold, cold time. And they are praying, God, you've brought 40 wrestlers to this battlefield. Pray, we pray that we'd have 40 wrestlers would have the victory. And one of them couldn't handle it anymore. And he ran and he went into the tubs. But their prayer was 40 wrestlers have come. And one of the centurions who is guarding the shore strips out of his clothes and comes onto the lake and says, I am a Christian. We pray such weak prayers, such vain prayers, when we should be praying things like that. God, use my life. Take my life and let it be. Holy, consecrate it to thee. 
In verse 15, we have this great promise. Verse 15. And if we, and if we know he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. This verse gets taken out of context to mean just whatever petty thing we're thinking of that God and his grace doesn't even give us because it would destroy us. We have to remember it's according to his will. I want us not to forget that what we just read in verse 14, it's according to his will. We know he hears us. And that whatever we ask, we know that we will have the request. There is a requirement to receiving. We pray according to his will. If you do this, you will have what you ask. If your will is in line with his will, you will desire what he desires. It's always wise to pray, thy will be done. There are those who say, well, we already know his will, so we don't have to pray this. In fact, it's a lack of faith. Absolutely not. It's how Jesus taught us to pray. Thy will be done on earth as is in heaven. If Jesus taught us and modeled this for us, it is always a good idea to pray, to know the will of God and to pray for that will. Second point today, verses 16 through 18. Know love and righteousness. We know love and righteousness. Love for each other begins, continues, and ends in prayer. John has reminded us again and again about the, in his letter, about the law of Christ. The law of Christ is to love one another. Love starts, continues, and ends between believers in prayer. We see this in the first step when we see a brother or sister struggling with sin. Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, leading to death, he shall ask God, and God will give him life. Excuse me. The first step in the Christian's life of loving one another is prayer. And I don't mean it's like the tag at the end of our sentence that when we're praying and it's after world peace and a new puppy and things like that. No, we take our brothers and sisters before the throne of God, the grace with confidence. We plead the blood of Christ over them. Before any confrontation, before we even try to get them back into the faith, we pray for them. We earnestly desire God's favor on them. We Plead the blood of Jesus over them. I talked about that last week. We stopped using that in church because we're so worried about the world judging us for this. But it's so powerful to plead the blood of Jesus on the basis of the sacrifice of your son. Do this. It's it's not to say that we we, we do not confront. But first we ask. First we pray. We take them before the throne of grace, of, throne of God with grace, with confidence. We do. We are supposed to confront other believers who are falling into sin. James tells us that when a believer is about to fall away, we earnestly go after them to try to save them from spiritual death. Galatians six one tells us that if anybody who is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, should restore them gently, but keep watch. Man, that's that's so important. Whether or not keep watch so we don't fall into their same sin. Or keep watch that a seed of pride doesn't enter into our heart. Because this is what happens. If I confront you about your sin and I haven't prayed, I haven't brought you to the Lord about it, I get arrogant. I get very arrogant. I become like the Pharisee when the Pharisee and the, and the, law, and the tax collector were praying together. This is one of Jesus' parables. The Pharisee says, thank you, God, I'm not like other men, like this guy over here. So if I see you struggling in a sin and I haven't prayed to God for you, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be like, God, thank you. I am not like Brother Bill. Sorry if your name is Bill here. I, didn't, 
I, mean, I wasn't aware if any of your name's Bill. But anyway, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about another guy. Anyway, um, Brother Bill, because Brother Bill is dealing with all of these things. And then I go to people in the church, right? And I start talking to them. Hey, you need to, talk, you need to pray for Brother Bill. Brother Bill is, he's doing some shady things behind everyone's back. And then I confront Brother Bill. And you know what my attitude when I confront Brother Bill, when I have not brought him before the throne of grace, I act like I'm superior and better, like I sin couldn't touch me. Oh, please. But if I do, and then I realize my own sin, I remove the law from my eye so that I can go to my brother and remove the speck from his eye and maybe even save them from spiritual death. Oh, thank you, Jesus. I remember in college, there was a group of people who thought their role in college was to be the Holy Spirit for everybody else. And um, little did anybody know, they were not living such a stellar life. They forgot to remove the plank from their own eye before they wanted to remove the speck from other people's eye. And I remember they would go to people and they're like, you know what your problem is? And they would start talking about what they thought their problem was. So they decided one day to make the mistake of going to one of my friends, um, uh, a guy, a guy, a friend there, and um, they were going to tell him, they're like, you know what your problem is? He's like, I want to stop you right there. I'm going to let you say whatever you want to say, but I want you to know that I'm then going to start in on you. And do you think that you're going to, things are going to go well for you after that? And that person just got up and left. We pray for the person. We see them falling into sin. In verse 16, 17, 18, this is probably one of the hardest sections of Scripture to understand. So I was kind of excited for this message because I'm going to hopefully make this very clear to you. It's the sin that leads to death. It's the elephant in the room. If you were like following along throughout the weeks and you're like, okay, this week it's going to be this one, I'm excited because I'm going to find out what in the world is John talking about? Sins that lead to death. Sins do not lead to death. And that all wrongdoing is sin. But there is a sin that does not lead to death. What is John talking about here? It's a bit complicated because we know that the soul that sins shall die, right? We know that all sin is damnable, meaning punishable in hell for eternity. So what is he talking about here? Is there different tiers to sin? Is he breaking with the New Testament writers and what they think about sin? Not at all. He wants to talk about the physical consequences to sin that are, that are in the believer's life. He is addressing this to brothers. And in this context, brothers means those who belong to the family of God. Verse 17 makes it more confusing. John addresses that all wrongdoing is sin, but that there is sin that does not lead to death. In the Old Testament, it says that the soul of sin shall die. Sin separates us from God. This is what John is teaching us here, is that while all sin is damnable, meaning deserving of hell, but there are some sins, not the unforgivable sin. Some people believe this to be the unforgivable sin, but it's not because he's talking to brothers. If you've committed the unforgivable sin, you're not a brother. You don't care either. If you're worried about committing the unforgivable sin, I guarantee you you've not committed the unforgivable sin. But if you have a hard heart and you care nothing of the things of God, you should be very, very worried. That it's not the unforgivable sin. Um, these are sins that result in physical death. Sin that results in physical death do not necessarily mean spiritual death, though it can mean that as well. John lived in a time where people literally dropped dead for committing the wrong sins. Let me give you some examples from the scripture. This is going to be 
somewhat difficult for you to take, I'll be honest. Especially if you subscribe to a theology that is not biblical, which is that God never, he, he, just, he just hands out candy to his, to his children and never disciplines them. And never disciplines them in any way, shape, or form. Two, two examples from the Old Testament, two examples from the New Testament of what I'm talking about here. I picked both Old Testament and New Testament, particularly because there's a certain popular pastor who says we should unhitch from the Old Testament, and he's absolutely wrong. The Old Testament informs the New Testament. But anyway, Old Testament and New Testament. The first one I want to talk about is in my notes here, is in 1 Samuel. All right, yeah, 2 Samuel, sorry. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 7. There's a guy named Yuza. The Ark of the Lord, the symbol, the symbol of the presence of God himself, was being brought from, Philistine, from the country of the Philistines to Israel, back to Israel. And they were not obeying God with the way that God said it should be transported. They had it on a cart, and they were moving it along, and it was about to fall. And Yuza puts out his hand to steady the Ark, and God, God strikes him dead. Because God didn't need him to steady the ark. He needed the king of Israel to follow his commands. He didn't need Yuza to steady his, to steady his ark. He treated the holiness of God like it was a joke, like it's just a common box. Then, we have the people of Israel in the desert. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9, tells us that, God, that they tested God in the desert and God sent snakes to kill them. God sent snakes to kill them. Furthermore, Aaron's two sons brought false fire before the Lord. We read about that today in Sunday school in Leviticus chapter 10. And God consumed them with fire. New Testament. So in case you're like, that was the angry God of the Old Testament, let's go to the New Testament. Ananias and Sapphira, the church is barely established. Ananias and Sapphira say that they sold all of their land, they cashed it out, and they brought all the money before the disciples. Now tell everybody how awesome we are. Now that's my own, like, interpretation of that. But that's what they wanted. They wanted people's praise. And then Peter tells them, how has Satan so filled your heart that you would lie to the Holy Spirit? And they dropped dead. Both of them dropped dead. This is the work of the Lord. They had committed a sin unto death. Also, I read, I was referencing this morning's from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30. Paul tells the Corinthian believers that they are sick and some of them are dying because they are eating the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. I want to get to the heart of this. In the Old Testament, we realize, we accept that God is very serious about his holiness. In the New Testament, I think we think that God doesn't care anymore and that we can just do whatever we want. We can come into the Holy of Holies and we can, and we can just make a complete mockery of church and things like that. And God is just going to, whatever, cool. You can call me your homeboy. You can make me part of the crew or whatever you want to say. But there's a holiness of God that God still cares about and still cares about in his church. Hi, Jeb. What are, oh, you're going to fill my water bottle back up? Thanks, man. I remember when I was pastor here, and I had this idea. So I'm going to tell you about where I've gotten it wrong, so you just don't think I'm, like, throwing stones at everyone else. I had this idea because I really like the, the show, The Greatest Showman. And I'm like, I want to make church. It's the greatest show in town. And then the Holy Spirit's like, it's my house. It's not yours. Do what you want in your house. Do what I, I want in mine. 
And I'm like, okay, okay, I got you. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that God steers me towards those things. So there are just some sins. And John says here, don't pray for people committing sins who lead to death. It's in God's hands. We trust them in God's care and control. If God decides that it is best for this person to be brought to him before they make themselves a scorner, which is a term from the Old Testament, meaning a fool with no redemption, glory to God. Um, I remember hearing this story about this mother who prayed over her child. God, if he's, not a, if he's not a believer later in his life, take his life right now. I remember thinking, it's like, that's what I pray over myself. All right. Take me, Lord, before I could ever wander too far from you. Um, Verse 18. Thank you so much. Verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God, but he who is born of God, God protects him, and the evil one cannot touch him. Um, This one right here, it's about direction, not perfection. Verse 18 is not talking about sinless perfection. If you read this and think, oh man, Today I sin. today I kicked the dog. God's not going to welcome me into his kingdom. Don't worry, this isn't about sinless perfection. It's about talking about a, a person who, um, we know that everyone who is born of God does not keep on sinning. It means an unbreakable, unbroken, habitual sin. It's the grammar of the word that's used here in the Greek for sinless. Hopefully you're following me here. It's in present perfect, meaning you are doing it, and you're continuing to do it without, without, respect, without, without stopping. It's a person who decides, God doesn't care I'm doing these things. I'm going to keep this from the Lord. A person born of God doesn't do that, doesn't want to do that. Sin fills them with sorrow. It's about direction, not perfection. We don't say, okay, I'm not, we comparison, we use comparisons. Well, I'm not as holy as this person. First of all, you have no clue. But you're like, okay, I'm not as holy as this person. It's not about that. Have I grown in holiness this year than last year? Am I growing in holiness? Have I backslidden, but now I'm going to get back on the right road because the Holy Spirit is encouraging me this way? That is what John is saying here in verse 18. We know that everyone who is born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who has been born of God... God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Isn't that cool? The devil can't touch you. You Pastor Jason, we talk all the time about spiritual warfare. We do. We do. Because the devil wants to add us at any moment in time. God will allow a certain sifting in our life, like he did of the disciples. But he says, I pray that you may not sin. The word here for touch us, it means attachment. If you are born of God, the evil one cannot touch you. The word being translated here for touch actually means attached. The evil one cannot be attached to you. It's the same word that is used when Jesus is resurrected and Mary Magdalene is at the tomb and she realizes it's Jesus. She thought he was the gardener and she reaches out to grab hold of him. He says, do not touch me. Do not hold on to me. The evil one cannot hold on to you, dear Christian. He is not stronger than our God. Here is yet another verse that would tell us that the evil one cannot possess us either because he cannot attach to us. Third, no eternal life. Verses 19 through 21. Verse 19, the world doesn't own you. Leslie Gore may have sang the song, but you can say to the world, 
you don't own me. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, but you have been born of God. It's why the world hates you. Once again, when we talk about the world here, we are not talking about the people in the world. We're talking about the systems of this world, the culture of this world, and they can't own you, and it drives it nuts. It's because the God of this world, the God of this age, the God of this culture is not the Lord, it is Satan. We're told that in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4, um, 4, 4, tells us that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Satan is the God of this age. Not through right, not through sovereignty, but through election. That the cultures of this world has elected Satan as their God. He doesn't have authority over this earth. God is not needing to take to go through your authority to subvert his authority or whatever because Satan's the god of this age now. That's utter ridiculousness. God does what he wills. He tells the devil what he can and cannot do. But this world, the culture of this world, loves the dragon. That's what we see in the book of Revelation. That they follow the dragon and his beast and his prophet. How do we know the truth? Verse 20. Verse 20 gives us two more no words. The first is the observable. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. We have the scripture, right? We can see in the scripture. God has given us understanding. We know this. So that we may, Ganesco, know him who is true and that we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is your purpose, is to know him. To know him. You know why you don't live in the abundant life that God has for you is because you have forgotten the spring that wells up to eternal life within you. So many of the things that we have conferences for, that there's TED Talks about on all these things, can be solved if we'd come back to the well. Back to fellowship. This is life eternal. An eternal life of significance. What is eternal life? Eternal life is heaven everlasting, absolutely. But it's before that as well. Jesus Christ, in his high priestly prayer, when he was praying to the Father, he prays that they would have eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you. That is your purpose in life, to know him. Verse 21. I was going to say before, this section of scripture contains... One of the verses we think is very easy to understand and one of the verses we think is the most complicated to understand. And really, they're switched over. Because when we understand the sins leading to death, we're talking about physical death. We've read about that in Scripture. This one right here, verse 21, that we think maybe sometimes it was just kind of like tacked on at the end because he thought it maybe sounds good, which is, little children, keep yourselves from idols. This explains all the rest of 1 John. And this morning I could go through verse by verse how this verse applies to all the rest. And this is the underpinning of all of the problems, all of the dysfunctions that John was seeing in the early church and he sees in us is because there's still idols in the church. This is why their doctrine was, was bad. This is why they were not living righteously. This is why they were not loving each other. It is because they had idols in their life. Before I get to the direct reference that John is speaking of here, the reason why they were going, they were believing the wrong things about Jesus. They weren't living righteously and they weren't loving each other. This is kind of extra about idols. This is something that Pastor Noah yesterday was talking about too. 
We have the verse, Becca mentioned it as well. Cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. And then come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So we're in the service, and I wrote in my phone, Jesus Christ says the, the last part, the last one there. And the apostle says the first one there. Cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. Jesus Christ, come to me, you all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How must it must grieve the Holy Spirit when we are weak and heavy laden, when we are overcome by sorrows, and we don't cast them on him who paid for him by his very blood, when we go on our phone, we go to social media and cast our cares on this. I hope it's nobody here, but maybe it is you and the Holy Spirit speaking to you right now. Their sole outlet, social outlet is social media. And when they are in distress, they go on here and they tell people, having a bad day today. Or they do that, that attention-seeking things like, don't ask or something like that, and they really want people to ask. And we then cast all our anxieties on, not on him, on here. As though this could give us any kind of peace. Pastor Noah talked about how, you know, we call, we call our feed, our social media feed, right? Of course, that's a fun play on words in the English, right? Data feed is what it's talking about, but we also use the word what we eat, right? What we consume, our feed. How many people have a constant diet of fear, anxiety, anger, rage, everything we read about of the works of the flesh because they go on social media and they cast all their cares on this? This is a God of the new age, an idol in the church, an idol in so many of our lives. We wonder why we have such anxiety. We have such everything the Lord does not want us to have. Because we're not listening to him, we're listening to those idols. And we're casting all our anxiety on them, instead of on the one who cares for us. Here was the readers of First John, this was their issue, is they had superstars in the faith, these Gnostics. They were popular people. By the time of the First Ecumenical Council, they became a force in and of themselves, and their leader was a guy named Arius. Arius had a doctrine that Jesus Christ was not fully God and fully man, just like John was preaching against. So in the first ecumenical council, he even had a song. Watch about, the, especially the Christian music you listen to, it's preaching to you. It's preaching to your soul. There's something wrong, don't just ignore it, because this is where they were coming down. They had idols in the church. And they were golden idols, they were rock stars, and they didn't want to say anything against them because those people also threatened them that they were touching the Lord's anointed and all of the rest of these things. So then their doctrine, their righteousness, and their love for each other was taking such a hit because of these idols. That's why John says, little children, keep yourself from idols. That's why John says, what we've seen, what we've heard. He doesn't say, hey, I'm telling you the true things. He's saying, we've heard already from Jesus Christ. It's not me. I come up here, I'm not saying, I, listen to me, I've got some really good ideas today, guys. I go to the scriptures, and I preach hard things. I'll be honest, in my flesh, I don't want to preach about the whole sin that leads to death, because I know it's kind of hard for us to understand and accept, but I have to preach from the scripture, or else it's just all me. There's these idols, even we have in church today, and when one of these idols gets smashed, we see the faith of people be shipwrecked. 
when we saw what happened with Hillsong in this last month, it's heartbreaking. I've been blessed through their music. Shout to the Lord, all the earth, let us sing. It grieves my heart that Brian Houston was found out to be not living the life he said he was living. It hurts my heart that Ravi Zacharias, a ministry I was blessed by, was doing things that were unmentionable in church. But they're not my God and they're not my idol. And if they had said something wrong, I pointed out because they're not my God and they're not my idol. There are constantly idols in the church and we are constantly being told, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Worship team, would you come up at this time? So much in this uh, first, in this last section of First John. I didn't know if I was going to get through all of it today. When I was practicing this morning, it was like an hour and a half. I don't know how long I've been preaching. Hopefully it hasn't been an hour and a half. I cut out some things. But so much right here. But let me remind you of the central tenets of First John, even from the beginning now, is that we know Jesus Christ experientially, and we know who he is. Fully God, fully man, I believe in the name of the Son of God. I believe he is everything he says he is, including Lord. And the evidence of that is that I live righteously. So if I'm not living righteously, I need to examine myself. What is going on? Is this because I'm believing a lie? Or is this coming from my heart? And I need to fall upon the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and truly be saved. And then the third one, we love each other. Are you having a hard time loving somebody today, holding a grudge? Today is the day you bring it to the altar and you give it to the Lord who already paid for it with his own blood. To cast all your cares on him and not on anyone else. The worship team is going to lead us in this final song. It's our chance to reflect on God's word. To allow it to chisel out anything that does not look like Jesus Christ. The Lord speak to you today, worship team. Please lead us. Thank you.